0: Amen. Let's turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we'll read the first six verses of that chapter. James chapter 5, I commence reading. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten; your riches have rotten, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves, your hearts, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Last Lord's Day, we concluded chapter 4 of the book of James. And we looked at what James was saying in verse 13 through to verse 17 about making future plans without God in mind. And therefore, appropriating or giving yourself some sense of misplaced sovereignty. When you plan without God, you somehow tend to think you are in control of the the situation or or the future. Today we begin chapter 5. And in this chapter, James deals with the woes of riches or wealth without God. And as we've been going through the book of James, we've highlighted that true faith shows itself in practical godly living. And what James has been doing is presenting tests of genuine serving faith. Tests which authenticate or nullify one's claim to be a Christian. And in chapter 5, he now presents another test. And this is a test with regard to money or how one views money or wealth. And the first six verses of chapter 5 forms a, a strong rebuke. to to those who go about pursuing pursuing wealth without God. And as James is doing so, he's rebuking those who claim that they worship God when in reality they worship money. And as James is doing this, he he assumes the role of Old Testament prophets who will pronounce judgments on the wicked and then apply the lessons to God's people so that they avoid the sins of the wicked. And as he's doing so, he's conscious that There were those in the churches he was writing to, or those who were to receive his letter, who who were professing Christians and were guilty of the sin he's confronting, where they were going about looking for wealth or wanting to create wealth at the expense of their souls or their relationship with God. Now, most commentators will, will debate as to who is James really addressing in these first six verses. Is he, is he writing to, to Christians or is he addressing non-Christians? If he is writing to non-Christians, why is he going about rebuking them strongly when they may not even end up reading his letter in Anyway. And if he's writing to Christians, others tend to think that he's so strong in his rebuke that he is not addressing his brothers with, with some sense of grace. Now, I personally t- think that the first six verses are addressed to non-Christians, those who pursue we- wealth, without God in mind. And the reason is that when you get to verse 7, the way James writes, he changes. In the first six verses, there's nowhere where he uses the term brothers or brethren. And immediately when he gets to verse 7, he says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. So when you see the shift in his style of writing, you could clearly see that he's writing to non-Christians who were assuming wealth without God in mind, but then in return abusing those who were believers. And as I said earlier on, he assumes the role of Old Testament prophets who will write to the enemies of Israel, And as they write to the enemies of Israel, warning them about the impending judgment or God's wrath, and then applies the lessons to the nation of Israel or to those who are believers. And this is exactly what we see James is is doing. He's writing a letter to the scattered saints. And as he now changes and now focuses to those who are non-Christians and probably who are also in the church or would be in religious gatherings, he warns them of these pursuits of wealth without God. And as he does this, he applies the warning or the lessons to those who are believers. And the lessons that James wants believers who hear this message, or believers who are hearing this message today, is the fact that they are being encouraged to pursue wealth with God in mind. Knowing that God will judge the world, they must go about in their pursuit of wealth with this picture in mind. But also what James wants us to see is is that we should not fall into the trap or into the sins that brings judgment to the wicked. And if this is what God is going to do to the wicked, we who belong to the household of God must not fall into those sins for which God is going to judge the wicked. And in this case, in our passage of Scripture, it was easy for those who are poor and are being oppressed to think that once I get rich, I will no longer have to deal with these problems. I will have my way as the rich are doing so. It was easy for them to be tempted to pursue wealth and thinking that in the pursuit of wealth lies true happiness. And the lesson that James has is this. Because wealth can be a dangerous trap for all of us. We should be careful not to use it in an ungodly manner, but rather to be faithful in the use of wealth. That's the lesson that James is highlighting. Wealth can easily become a trap for all of us, Christians and non christians And therefore, as believers, we should be careful in our pursuit of wealth, that we don't do it in an ungodly manner, but rather we remain faithful to God even in our pursuits of wealth and we must use it for his glory and honor. And this is James' burden in these first six verses. And the first thing we see is that James highlights the future warning. Of riches without God. There is this future warning that he's pointing to with, without God. There's this future warning of riches without God. And he begins in verse 1 with a forceful pronouncement of this impending judgment. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And in this verse, in verse 1, he's dealing with the attitude of many who are rich. This may not be a blanket uh, description of everyone who's rich, but sadly, it is a description of many who are rich. And, and, and this attitude of deception is one that is void of reality. And, and, and James is warning them of this future coming judgment. As we, t- we noted last Lord's Day evening, the phrase, come now, which was in verse 13, is also he also uses it in verse verse 1. It is an insistence or an insistent call for attention. It is a pointed call f- for attention that indicates the seriousness of what follows. And, and as James is calling for attention, he's saying, listen. This is what I want you to to take heed. Stop whatever it is that you are doing and pay particular attention to that which I'm going to address. And he talks about those who are rich, those who are amassing wealth without gold in mind. They had obtained great wealth but in their pursuit of this wealth, they had not maintained integrity. And as it speaks of their wealth, they are not just wallowing in this wealth, but they are also abusing this wealth. And as they abuse this wealth, the result of it is that they were proud. And later on, you see in verse, verse, verse 5 and verse 6, they were living in self-indulgence. And James says weep and how. And obviously the, the, the word weep means to sob or to lament loudly. And when you when you look at when you look at this word in the New Testament, it was used to describe the wailing that took place when someone died. You find this in Mark chapter 5, verse 37 and 38. You also find it in John chapter 11, 31. Uh, And what this does, is that it illustrates the outward reaction. But also, this word was used... To illustrate this outward reaction that sometimes accompanied intense shame and guilt, And that's the sense in which the word "weep" is used in Matthew 26 and verse uh, verse seven, let me just confirm that Matthew 26. It's actually verse 75. Matthew, 6 and verse, Matthew 26 and verse 75. You remember when Peter denies the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, this is what the Bible says. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the weeping there in Matthew 26 is not that he had lost anyone or someone had died, but it was the sense of shame, the sense of guilt, that he had denied his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And James again uses this word, weep, in verse 9 of chapter 4, when he writes, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now in chapter 4 verse 9, James uses the same word to weep, but he's saying let your weeping, let that sense of guilt and shame be accompanied by repentance. That's what he's talking about when he's warning against worldliness. But while there is no lament of repentance, there is no grace or forgiveness. And this is what he's writing to the people that he is addressing. But also he adds another word, that is weep and howl. And this word just intensifies the scene of despair. This word howl, it appears only in gems in, in the New Testament. No other rite of the New Testament uses this word. And it goes beyond mere lamenting. It, it refers to, 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 to screaming in intense sorrow. So it's not just a lament, but it's one screaming in intense sorrow. And when James uses these words together, weep and howl, He pictures an intense outburst of despairing. He pictures this violent, uncontrollable grief. It signifies emotional outburst of those who ignore God and God's claim and will be overwhelmed with the realization of their loss when God appears in judgment. And James is saying there will be this this emotional outburst. And this emotional outburst will be as a result of realizing that all this time I lived my life thinking that I'll escape the judgment of God. And now I'm face to face with God. And James is picturing The judgment seat. And he's saying there will be this audible sobbing, being repeatedly pierced by their house, their weeping of agony at the return of the rejected Savior, Jesus Christ when he appears on the judgment seats. And so, James is warning, giving this future warning of riches without Christ. And when he he writes to them, he says, weep and howl. He gives the reason why they should do that. He says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's the reason why they should weep and howl. There is this misery, untold misery, that is coming upon them. James knew that these individuals were deceived. They were deceived in thinking that they would never be in want. But he says, there is this deep grief and sorrow that is coming. And it's becoming, not because you are rich, it's coming upon you because you pursued your riches without God. You had no regard for God. You had no desire for God. Everything centered on your appetite for riches. And now you are face to face with God. And this is the tragedy of the world. That there are many today living on top of the world as it were, never thinking that anything could hinder their prosperity or their pursuit of wealth. But the scriptures do remind us that one day we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. And wealth, power, influence will not delay God's judgment. Will not stay God's judgment. Will not even be a cover for God's judgment. And this is a warning that we too must avoid. Yes, we may be saved by grace, but it is possible to pursue wealth in an ungodly manner. It is possible to use the gifts that God gives us in a way which does not honor God. Just as it is possible to use our spiritual gifts like the church at Corinth in a manner which does not honor God. The church at Corinth has all kinds of issues, suing one another, immorality in the church, boasting over spiritual gifts, and Paul writes to them, that while I may recommend you that you are excelling in zeal as far as spiritual gifts are concerned, but I want you to know that this ought not to be the case. God is not honored by your meetings. And that same line of thinking is also what James is trying to show us with regard to wealth. That a pursuit of wealth in a manner that is dishonors God is dangerous. And there's a future judgment that is coming on all who have such an attitude. But James moves on to highlight in the second place the future worth. The future worth of riches without Christ. The future worth of riches without Christ. Verse 2 and verse 3. Your riches have rotten, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their collision will be evidenced against you, and you eat your flesh like fire. James now pictures the impact of. The coming judgment upon their wealth. James is, is, is making the point that wealth is passing, is temporary, and the judgment and the eternity are ahead. They are coming. While you are investing your energies, In these things that are passing, these things that are short lived, don't forget that the judgment of God is ahead and eternity is waiting. Now, in 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 James times, there were three many three main indicators of wealth. And James uses three terms to to point to the the temporary nature of each of them. The first indicator, which was used as, as a measure of wealth, was grain. And as James writes, he says to them, your riches... Have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten, and it goes on. The, 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 in, in those days, they would store grain, and they will store it in, in large bins or in storage towers. And that signified a sense of security, food security, but also it, measures, it measured the, the, the wealth of a person or a country. And you recall when uh, Pharaoh put Joseph in charge, the first thing they did was to to build storage towers where they would pour grain. And when the the, the times of want, when famine had come, at least they were secured. They were well catered for. And in Egypt, you recall people would travel to go buy grain for them, and therefore that also increased the wealth of the nation. And this continued even in James' days, where grain was looked at as as an indicator of wealth. But James writes that even that which you boast about gets rotten, it gets destroyed. And when it gets destroyed all is lost you can no longer boast that you have grain you can't boast that you are food secured you can't boast about selling grain to others in exchange of whatever materials you needed it's rotten and it's good for nothing the second was clothing that was clothing was another indicator of wealth. In the days when when most of the poor the only clothes they would have are the clothes they wore. Having an extra pair of clothing was deemed as a sign of wealth. If one had more than one cloth to change it was deemed as one who was rich and if you recall in judges chapter 14 when Samson gives a riddle and he asks them to to find its meaning in verse 12 of judges 14 he promises to give them a change of clothing basically saying they will have material they need for their clothing. He promised linen, but also promised a change of clothing so that they will not just have, the, the only clothes they will have is not the one on them, but that they will have extra. We'll also remember in, the, in, in, Gen, in Genesis 45 and verse 22, when The brothers have appeared to Joseph. Joseph recognized them. And as they are heading back, what he does is that he puts silver coins in some of the sacks, but in in Benjamin, when you read in Genesis 45 and verse 22, he puts a change of clothing. In Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan, was the fact that he admired, he took a Babylonian garment. Again, for him, it was a change of clothing to have extra. And again, you can find the same in Second Kings chapter five and verse five. Again, this issue of a change of clothing. This was deemed as a sign of wealth the apostle paul in acts chapter 20 and verse 33 when he's when he's writing to the elders at ephesus and he's telling them what will happen when he leaves that fierce wolves will come from among themselves and he ages the, the elders To emulate his way of life, in Acts 20.33, Paul would write that he did not covet anyone's money or change of clothing. Basically saying, I did not admire anyone's wealth or anyone's clothing or anything that resembled their wealth. And James echoes the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he warns in Matthew 6 verse 19 about their treasures that are eaten by worms. So a change of clothing was one that was looked at as an indicator of wealth. And here James is saying your garments are moth eaten with the passage of time, your garments become useless. That which you piled up as, as a measure of wealth, as time passes, as they are being exposed to the heat of the environment, to the temperatures around, they fade, and they can easily be eaten by worms. And the last 30 indic- sign of the indicator of wealth was silver and gold. And again, James as he writes he knows that these metals are subject to 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 collusion, to, to lust to rust rather. He, he, he knew that they had, they had a short lifespan they would be wasted away. But also, as he's writing in verse 3 there, he, he's actually using some sense of sarcasm. And, and as he's writing to them, he's saying, Imagine you've accumulated silver and gold. What is this, all this when you stand before God in judgment? It's futile, it's worthless. It will not save you from the coming judgment of God. All those precious metals are doomed to the corruption that are in them and they will waste away. And he says in the last part of verse 3 there, and their collusion will be evidenced Evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. And as he's writing that, he's, he's basically saying, Look, all these things, of what use will they be to you when you die or at the point of death? You would have accumulated all these things only to realize in that moment when it matters the most that they were useless. Like the rich fool in the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, all the way to verse 21. The rich fool had stored up treasures for himself. He had grain for himself. He built big barns to store all these things, only to realize that what mattered the most at that time was not his wealth, was not his riches, but his, his relationship with his God. And God demanded his life. And he discovered that all these things could not save him from the judgment of God. The security he thought he had because of this bumper harvest was nothing in the face of death, in the face of the judgment judgment of God. And therefore, James... He's saying to be rich without God is to be short-sighted in light of eternity. James is rebuking them for laying treasures without regard for God's timetable. God has a plan, God has a timetable, and the flow of redemptive history is as God has planned. And to store treasures without that in mind, without asking what's the purpose of life, what's the chief end of man, is to be short-sighted. Has you spend your your energies chasing all these things only to realise that you are facing God in judgment and your treasures can not help you? The ungodly rich people mistakenly think that their wealth will mitigate the hardships of life. So we will mitigate them themselves or we will protect them from the hardships of life. It will protect them and their families. But James is saying, you're basically storing it up in misery because you stand before the judgment seat of God. A story is told of a man who was visited by an angel. And he was told that he can see the future. And as he, can, as he sees the future, he can plan his life as he wanted. And the man was excited and began to, to, to look at, at the, stock, the, the, market, the stock exchange markets. And he's seeing how, he can, he, how he's able to invest his wealth here and there and make so much money. And was so excited at the possibility of making so much money. Has he seen just how much money he can make? Has he invest in the stock market, in the stock exchange? But that excitement was short-lived when he looked in the corner. And so the day he was to die and the message of condolences that were coming forth from his friends and business colleagues to his family. The reality of him dying just swallowed up all his prospects his excitement of making so much money. And this is exactly what James is saying. The future worth of riches without God, what will that do on the day of your death, on the day of your judgment? And that's what James wants the world to hear but more importantly, believers not to fall into this trap of endlessly pursuing wealth at the expense of their soul, at the expense of their relationship with God. It's futile without God, and it will not help in the day of your death and the day of your judgment. And in the third place, he, James highlights the fatal works of riches without God. The fatal works of riches without God. Verse 4 to verse 6, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, And the cries of the harvesters have reached the the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And James is now highlighting the results of wealth without God. And he's saying there's this fatal works of these riches. And as he calls for attention and says, Behold! He wants them to see his earnestness for them, his passion for them, and he says, "Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept by fraud, they are crying against you." Has reached the ears of God, and the James is is charging them, and as he's giving this charge he says this is a serious issue that needs attention. And for James, yes, he has in mind the judgment of God. And his his eschatology, as it were, does not unsharpen or blunt social criticism. His, his, his eschatology or his view of the coming judgment inspires his concern for the society. And he emphasized that in view of the future pending judgment of God, you ought to, to treat people with honor, with respect. You ought to, to treat the poor in society with a clear conscience. James does not... blind himself... to the current social problems... that were prevailing. His view of the coming judgment... strengthens the social concerns... that he has. And the reason why he's doing this... is basically pleading with those who are... oppressing the poor that there's a judgment coming. And because of this judgment, you ought to do that which is right now. You stand before the judgment of God. And he says, the poor are crying to God. You've robbed them. You've stolen from them. You've used your wealth to steal that which belongs to them. And that's the complaint James has. The complaint is that they have defrauded the field laborers of their pay. And what this could mean is that the rich would pay the workers' but they'll do so after undue delay. They will hold on to the wage or the wages of the poor. Or it can also mean that they pay less than the agreed wage or less than the living wage. Or they refuse to pay at all. The poor will do the work. And then the rich will refuse to pay. And the scriptures emphasize. Or the biblical law emphasizes. The need to pay the wages. It's like the wages of the day's laborers. There are those who labored for the day similar to those who do peace work. And James would say that you must pay a fair wage to the day's laborers because if you don't do so, at the end of the day, the laborer will go to his family without the pay and him and his family will go without food because you've not paid them. The laborers would go out in the communities to look for jobs with a view that when they've worked and they are paid, they will be able to buy something for their families. And what James is highlighting there is that these rich were insensitive towards the poor. And they would take advantage of them And they would think that no one would touch them. The poor were powerless. They were powerful. And they will not be touched. And he says in verse 5 that you are living in luxury and in self-indulgence. And yet you have not paid the laborers those who mowed your fields, harvested your crops, you have not paid them. And James is saying their cries have have reached God. Their God is hearing. And their God is the almighty God. He will act. He will respond on their behalf. And as you live in luxury and in self-indulgence, don't forget that those whom you've defrauded are crying to their God. And in verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. When you, when you look at the root m- meaning of the word luxury, it's not always used in the negative sense. The Greek translation of Nehemiah and Isaiah in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 25 and also Isaiah 66 verse 11, that word that Greek equivalent of luxury that is used refers to the peace and the life of abundance that God provides to, to his people. In Nehemiah in, and in Isaiah, it describes the life of abundance, the life of ease, as a result of God's provision for his people. But now, in, in, in this particular passage, when James says you've lived in luxury, and then he says in self-indulgence, he's basically saying this has nothing to do with God. It's about self. It's all centered on the rich, and their minds are on earth. That's why he says you have lived on earth in luxury. It has nothing to do with God. It's about everything that have to do with earth. And their minds are confined to earth. And that's why James says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. He's saying you're like animals that are being fattened. And those animals, when they're being fattened, they're being fed. They think they're being loved. When each moment they chew the grass, so each moment they eat of the food that is being provided, they are moving closer to the slaughter. And that's what James is saying here. That as your minds are confined to the earth, as you Live in luxury and in self-indulgence. Each day that you are doing this, you are fattening yourself, fattening your hearts for the day of slaughter, the judgment day. And he's saying, don't think that the fact that you are getting away with defrauding the poor, that God is Happy with you. You are like an animal that is being fattened in readiness for a bride. So the ones that are fattening the animal have their own selfish means or selfish ends. It's so that the animal is ready for their self indulgence. And James is saying that's the same picture. You, are, you steal from the poor. You are fattening yourself for the day of slaughter, the judgment day. And then he says in verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, the word condemned there is picturing that these rich have won, have taken the poor to the courts, and they've won. That word of condemned is, is a legal term that James is employing there. It's an official passing of condemnation. And he's saying, yes, you've used the judicial system. You've used your wealth to buy the judges, to buy the judicial system, and you've condemned the poor. And as a result of that, you've robbed them of everything, and you've indirectly murdered them because they are starving. You've murdered the righteous person. They are not resisting you. All they want is what belongs to them their pay. But you've used your wealth to bribe and buy off everyone and therefore you kill the righteous person. One who simply wanted his pay. And James is saying you Think you're getting away with it. Judgment is coming. That's why you must weep because the judgment is coming. James is not condemning wealth but is concerned about motive. He wants his fellow brothers in Christ to have pure motive in every aspect of life including wealth he wants them to please god even in the accumulation of wealth the use of wealth he wants those who read this letter to have God at the center of everything to pursue wealth in a godly way and after accumulating that wealth to use it in a God honoring manner What James is dealing with in this passage, he's addressing the issue that has plunged humanity for centuries the love of money. He's dealing with the love of money and the dangers such love brings. He wants us to understand that wealth and possession do not constitute sin in and of themselves. It is possible to obtain much in this life and still live a life pleasing to God. But his concern is to warn believers, not to fall prey to 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 the allurement of money and possession because this is what leads us astray he wants believers to realize that true satisfaction is in Christ and Christ alone and everything that comes our way if we the recipients are not satisfied in Christ, we will never be satisfied by any living thing. There's a God created vacuum in all of us that cannot be satisfied by any living thing or any created thing but God himself. And that vacuum keeps on growing the more You chase after the things of this world. Only God can fill that void, that vacuum. And if you don't find satisfaction in God, nothing in this world will satisfy you. Nothing at all. Many who pursue riches without God, Lack contentment. And therefore they just chase after one thing after another. And that's what has characterized our society today. The accumulation of wealth. And the accumulation of wealth without God. Creates creates a longing for more of these. And many have bought into this perception that wealth translates into success and happiness. And yet we forget that every day we keep on hearing and reading of stories of rich people killing themselves, committing suicide, and dragging one another to the courts of law in all kinds of lawsuits. And James is saying it is easy for you to fall prey to this perception that wealth translates into happiness, or it's easy for you to think that I will not fall into this trap. And it gives warning to all of us that we must not fall into this trap of pursuing wealth without God. I don't know how many of you have either read books or watched a documentary. Uh, It's called Men Who Build America. There's also a book and There's a guy called Andrew Carnegie, or Carnegie, who was an American industrialist. He led the expansion of of the American steel industry in the late 19th century and actually became one of the richest Americans or richest men in history. And he, he wrote in one of his memoirs or his diaries that millionaires who laugh are rare. Millionaires who laugh are rare. At the age of 33, he drafted a, a memo to himself and he wrote... The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. And then in that memoir he said he was going to retire at 35. But he did not retire until when he was 46. and began simply to give away most of the money he had accumulated. By age 51, he finally married to a lady who was 21 years younger than him. And it was after the death of his mother because he said he wanted to take care of his mother. And later on when he died, what stuck in his mind... Was what he wrote in his memoir when he was 33 years old. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. The lesson for us is evening brethren is this we have the responsibility to be faithful to God in the realm of financial stewardship this life is not final the wicked may live luxuriously on earth oppose the righteous with no consequences at all the test will be The final judgment, that will be the test. And for you and me, it's either we trust in money and this will show in our pursuits of money or we trust that one day we'll see God and we'll give an account to this God. Wealth is a good thing. It's a good tool if we are careful to use it as stewards of God. But wealth is a dangerous trap if we adopt a worldly perspective towards it. We must have a godly view of wealth and we must be good stewards who know that we'll give an account to God. And if we rob God in our use of resources, we'll give an account to him. Let's be faithful stewards. Let's heed to the warning of James Let's not fall into this trap which is writing and warning us about. Amen.